From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An actor from Colorado who's in the movie Rust is torn over whether the film should be finished after the killing of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. At first, I'm like, this movie just needs to be thrown in the trash. But then I started thinking about Helena and her craft is all over this movie. Actor Marty Lindsay is sure that the filming of gun scenes should change forever. Then this election could reshape Denver from sidewalks to pandemic preparedness. We'll run through the baker's dozen measures on the city's ballot. And later, the voice that started it all. This is Colorado Matters. That's Dan Dreher, our show's first host. He'll help us celebrate 20 years on the air. Plus, for Halloween, Jewish horror. You can donate most vehicles to Colorado Public Radio, including cars, trucks, and motorcycles. And you can donate them in any condition, on one condition. The title has to be in your name. You'll also have to answer a few simple questions like, Where is your car? And when would you like us to pick it up? Simple work to make a big impact. Start the donation process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. An actor from Colorado with a role in the movie Rust says the cinematographer's death should forever change the filming of gun scenes. Marty Lindsay grew up in Arvada. He was not on the set the day Helena Hutchins was shot and killed by actor Alec Baldwin with a gun that was deemed cold. As the investigation continues, Lindsay reached out to Colorado Matters. Marty, thank you for being with us. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Thanks for having me. Why did you want to speak to me? I've been contacted by several different news sources, and it felt like they just were digging for information and talking points, and it just didn't feel like they were leading with what was important, and that was honoring Helena, her career, her contributions to cinema and our industry. Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer. Right. Did you have much opportunity to work with her on this project? Yep. Yep. I mean, she's hard to miss, too, because she's the DP, you know. she. Um, you could tell she had some fire to her, and she was it's hard not to pay attention to what she was doing. I know that up until that day, you know, the movie was looking really good, really good. And her craft is all over that movie. I'm curious how you sense that as an actor. And and you say DP, that's director of photography, by the way. Sometimes you get on projects and DPs as well as, you know, actors can just can sort of go through the motions. And obviously it depends on the day and how much, where you are in the day. And if you're just trying to get your shots, you could just tell that this movie was important to her. This wasn't just a paycheck, you know? Uh, I I do think this was a big break for her. Uh, How did you learn of her death? I was actually in Colorado. Um, A friend of mine who works in production on another show called me probably 
20 or 30 minutes, 40 minutes after it happened because word travels fast in the community, especially in New Mexico. Uh, I had only had a few days on Rust. So there was the potential for me to come back to shoot another scene. And I didn't know when that was going to happen, but I had left the set and drove to Colorado to my mom's birthday. So we, we went to the Meow Wolf here and had a family dinner. And so I was in Denver. I was in Arvada. And what was your reaction to the news? Total shock. And it just, you know, I've, I've been on so many sets. Your, your brain, I think, anybody who works in film, you want to deconstruct it. I've handled many guns on sets over the years, from pistols to old Lugers to rifles to shotguns to, you know, military-style M4 rifles. And I've never really felt unsafe there's protocols in place and there there's safety checks. There's, you know, double, triple, quadruple checks uh, that happen when you are handling guns. I have friends who are armorers. It's unfathomable for me. Although accidents happen all the time, it's really tough when it hits you at home, it hits your production and it's somebody that you work who you worked with and i don't know how this happened i know there's an investigation involved and they're going to get to the bottom of it the santa fe police department is you know all over this obviously you know you think about it 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 was negligence on one or more parts but just total shock and it's not our role to speculate on who that negligence belongs to uh, that as you say will be uh, discovered in the investigation. Were you aware mm-hmm. of the walk-off by members of the yeah. crew earlier around safety concerns? And are those concerns that you shared at all as an actor on Rust? I was aware of it. The production seemed a little, uh, it seemed a little rough on my days, even from the time I you know, went in for my fitting. It just, it it felt like a small movie, you know, it felt like an indie film and it it didn't quite add up. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. And really it is an independent film because it's not a big budget. However, they have, you know, major stars in it, huge names uh, right now, Alec and Travis Thimmel and Jensen Ackles and Francis Fisher. I mean, so it was just a little confused, you know, um, it felt, uh, I've been on so many small to medium sized independent films and you just sort of come to expect that kind of wonkiness for lack of a better word. And so it didn't really make sense to me. I, you know, and I, I got on set and things were a little off just organizational wise. So, but that happens and you don't, I guess uh, you don't, think too much about it it's just like any other job things get a little messy you know and you have a limited amount of time a limited amount of money so you're stretching departments and so you're stretch trying to stretch out days and so to answer your question and i'm 
kind of a long-winded <laughs> answer here, but I think what I think you're processing. Little, I think you're processing. Yeah, I am. I haven't really been able to talk about this. I mean, the the last thing, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is be silent about this because I don't ever want it to happen again. I don't think blank rounds will ever be a part of film productions ever again. Hmm. This is it. It's over. So every gun shot will be digitally, I think, from here on out. This is just my professional opinion from working in this industry for now 23, 4, 5 years. I don't see it. It's unneeded. It's unnecessary. You can put all that in and you don't have to worry about it. However, a blank round replicates a live round. You get the smoke and the and the kick from the gun and everything, but it's just too risky. Can you act the blow back? Uh, yeah, I have before on projects where they were going to digitally put in the kick or put in the fire from the or in the smoke. Yeah, you can. Not every actor is a gun expert, you know, knows how to shoot a gun. So oftentimes you're overdoing it. And that may be, you know, part of the training for the armorers and the, and the prop masters who are in charge of guns, hopefully, and should be part of the training of when an actor has to handle a gun. There's a, a famous, I think we should say infamous case, of course, involving the director, yeah. Brandon Lee, in 1993 mm-hmm. on the set of The Crow, a co-star yeah. fired a prop gun uh, during the filming mm-hmm. of, a, of a murder scene. Now, production on The Crow continued after that incident, and it makes me wonder mm-hmm. if you'd like to see Rust uh, continue and, and, and land in theaters. I have really flip-flopped on that emotionally because at first I'm like, this movie just needs to be thrown in the trash and be done with it, you know. But then I started thinking about Helena and her craft is all over this movie. And it made me think deeper about her legacy. And truly, I think it should be up to her family. I think her family should decide. I'm pretty sure they only had about another week of shooting of principal. So right now, I do feel like the movie should be finished for her, for her sake, and it should be dedicated to her. Marty, thank you so much for chatting with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Marty Lindsay is from Arvada, Colorado, now lives in Albuquerque. He plays a cowhand named Harley in the film Rust. Production in New Mexico has shut down while the Santa Fe Sheriff's Office investigates the shooting death of the cinematographer on set. The film's director was also hurt when actor Alec Baldwin fired a gun he was told was safe. And we'll be right back with the bevy of ballot measures in Denver this election. Keep it tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. 
Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. It may be an off-year election, but depending on where you live, there could be a lot of local issues to decide. In Denver, there are just over a dozen local measures, many asking if the city can borrow money for public projects. In total, nearly a half billion dollars in bonding. Denverites Esteban Hernandez will walk us through some of what's on the ballot in Colorado's capital city. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ryan. I'll just note that there's a breakdown of all these measures in the Denverite Voter Guide at denverite.com. A breakdown so that you don't have a breakdown when you're filling out your ballot. Uh, Voters are being asked in Denver five times to raise the city's debt, measures 2A through 2E. Talk about these. Uh, Yes, uh, these are all bond questions that combined ask voters to approve $450 million to pay for a bunch of stuff. Uh, Each one corresponds to a different set of projects. 2A, for instance, covers the cost to repair and improve places like the Denver Botanic Gardens, the Museum of Nature and Science, and the Denver Zoo. It would also build uh, two new libraries and upgrade others. It would renovate a building already owned by the city into a youth empowerment center, and it would preserve a theater at the historic Loreto Heights campus in southwest Denver. Plus, it pays for uh, accessibility upgrades to city buildings in general. At $104 million, that's about a fifth of the $450 million being requested there in 2A. So say a little more about where this money would come from. Yeah, so voters are deciding if the city should issue general obligation bonds to pay for these projects. Uh, Yes vote means that the city can borrow this money by issuing bonds. This does not come with a tax increase, but it's possible taxes could be raised by the city in the future to help pay back the bonds. Okay, and what about those other bond measures? Run through those. So ballot issue 2B asks for about $38 million to buy and develop shelter facilities for people experiencing homelessness. 2C asks for $63 million for transit projects, so stuff like roads, bike lanes, and sidewalks. Uh, 2D asks for $54 million to improve parks and recreation projects. That includes two new parks in Northeast and South Denver. And 2E asks voters to approve $190 million to pay for a new arena at the National Western Center Complex. It would also transform the historic 1909 stadium building there into a public market. Uh, That neighborhood is pretty much a food desert. Okay, does the mayor support all five of these, Esteban? Uh, Yes, Mayor Michael Hancock and the city's chief financial officer, Brendan Hanlon, are are pushing the bond package as part of the city's overall recovery from the pandemic. The city believes these projects will help create jobs and bring in more money by improving and man- maintaining these spaces. I guess they're saying you have to spend money to make money <laughs> right. uh, or generate money. What What about opposition to this? So Denver election uh, records show no organized campaigns against most uh, bond measures, but uh, 2E, the one that pays for an arena at National Western, yep. does have some opposition. Uh, a group called Vote No on the Arena Bond is a political committee. They oppose it on the grounds that it could lead to future tax increases, and they question whether it will improve food access to people in the area. Let's shift to some of the other issues in Denver. Ballot issue 2F has to do with people living together. 
Right. If voters say yes, it would be illegal for three or more unrelated adults to live together in a single-family home. It repeals an ordinance passed by Denver City Council earlier this year that allows up to five unrelated adults to live together. Okay, what's the thinking behind this? So a group called Safe and Sound Denver thinks the law, as it stands now, will overpopulate neighborhoods and negatively impact their character. Uh, At the same time, this law makes it easier for group homes like community corrections and residential care facilities to be established. Okay. So to be clear, uh, that group supports 2F and wants it passed to get rid of the existing ordinance. Correct. And a group called uh, Keep Denver House opposes 2F. They're a group of organizations, elected officials, and community leaders, including Mayor Hancock and the 11 city council members who approved the law in February. They think if the ordinance is repealed, it will cause more people to be displaced from their homes at a time when affordable housing is hard to come by in Denver. Let's talk a bit about police accountability in the form of ballot issue 2G. Yeah, so right now, uh, the mayor appoints the independent monitor. That's the person who acts like a watchdog over Denver police and sheriffs. They follow up on citizen complaints like use of excessive force, in-custody deaths, and when cops shoot someone. 2G would allow a group made up of citizens instead of the mayor to choose the independent monitor. Okay, so citizens making that choice. What kind of support does that change have? So the the Denver City Council thinks the change would create a broader public trust, and they think it would create more independence from the mayor and avert conflicts of interest. Uh, There's no organized opposition to this uh, ballot measure, although supporters of a strong mayor system have historically opposed taking any power away from from the mayor's office. Most of the measures we've been talking about so far were all referred by the city council, but there are also ones in Denver that landed on the ballot after signatures were collected, like initiated Ordinance 300. It asks voters to raise taxes on recreational marijuana to pay for pandemic research, huh? Uh, Yep. If voters approve it, the sales tax on uh, retail marijuana in Denver would grow by one and a half percent. That's a 15 cents on a that's 15 cents on a ten dollar purchase. It's estimated that the tax would raise seven million dollars a year. Uh, The money would pay for research at the University of Colorado, Denver, focusing on ways to prevent future pandemics. So how to protect the public from the spread of pathogens in schools, businesses and hospitals and how to better recover from a pandemic. This is an election issue born out of COVID-19. What kind of support does it have? I'm curious about the background here. So a group called Guardians Against Pandemics uh, uh, is based out of Delaware. It collected the signatures to get this on the ballot here. It's registered as a social welfare nonprofit. uh, And the Denver Pandemic Fund has spent about $200,000 on the campaign. They argue that at Uh, that at all levels of government were caught off guard by COVID-19. They think by investing in local research, uh, Denver can become a leader in preparing for a pandemic. I should note, though, the University of Colorado has not taken a position on Ordinance 300. Um, Anti-tax conservatives call this a pointless tax grab. They say higher taxes will only push people to buy on the black market again. Right, because this is coming from a hike on recreational marijuana taxes. Fascinating that the University of Colorado, which is where the research would be based, has not taken a position. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and there's an election coming up. We are going through the rather substantial ballot in Denver with Denverites Esteban Hernandez. 
Um, there are a few measures we won't dive into here dealing with an old golf course and another tax-related issue that listeners can learn more about at denveri.com. But uh, before we go, I would like to ask about Ordinance 303, requiring the city to respond to homeless encampments more quickly. So, yeah, the, the city would have 72 hours to enforce its camping ban after receiving a complaint. If it doesn't, residents can sue the city. It also allows the city to create four more authorized camping locations on public property, and those locations would include running water, restroom, and lighting. Okay, so this sets something of a clock ticking when the city receives a complaint about uh, an encampment. Right. Um, Okay, who's for and against 303? So the chair of the Denver Denver Republican Party, Garrett Flicker, uh, he spearheaded this proposal. In a press release, he said the goal is to be compassionate toward people experiencing homelessness while increasing city accountability and to empower residents who may feel unsafe or unheard. The Denver City Council released a proclamation opposing Ordinance 303. They say it's misleading and they call it uh, a false promise. They also say uh, federal court orders require encampments to get a seven-day notice before they're cleared away. So the 72-hour mandate actually violates the law. Okay, there could be some tension there if that were to pass, maybe legally. A lot to unpack, Esteban. Uh, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Esteban Hernandez, who put together the voter guide at denverite.com. It's also linked in the statewide voter guide at CPR.org. And do keep in mind, it's now too late to drop your ballot in the mail for the November 2nd election. So best to use a drop box. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with Hebraic Horror. Just in time for Halloween, I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's high elevation and dry climate make for good stargazing, unless you're near a city that glows with light pollution making it hard to see any but the brightest stars and planets. To view the Milky Way and other celestial bodies, head to Fluorescent Fossil Beds or Dinosaur National Monument. These are among Colorado's International Dark Sky Parks. Joining designated International Dark Sky communities like Silvercliff, Ridgeway, Westcliff, all of them distinguished by the deepness of their starry nights. A dark night benefits more than astronomers. Most living things depend on the daily cycle of light and dark to govern periods of activity and rest. And in humans, darkness triggers the release of the hormone melatonin, which encourages bodily recuperation. And, as David White says in his poem Sweet Darkness, the night will give you a horizon further than you can see. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. For Halloween, we have a fictional horror story for you from a people who've lived through plenty of real-life nightmares. Today's story is part of a new collection called The Jewish Book of Horror from the Denver Horror Collective. It features pirate rabbis and concentration camp vampires. The writer whose story we'll hear joins us, Lindsay King-Miller of Denver. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be here. And the editor who got this collection blessed by a rabbi, I believe, a real-life one, not a pirate rabbi, uh, is Josh Schlossberg of Evergreen. Hi, Josh. Thanks for being with us. I'm really glad to be here. Josh, as a Jew myself, I thought of the natural connection between horrific history and horror stories, but that connection also made me feel a little cringy. Like, do you m- risk making light of atrocities with an approach like this? 
There's always the risk of doing that in any sort of writing, of course. I grew up Jewish, went to a conservative synagogue, Hebrew day school from preschool to sixth grade, had my bar mitzvah, studied the Holocaust a bit in college, been researching it over the years. So I'm very cautious about anything like making light of the plight of a people. So I made sure that no stories that would ridicule in any way the Jewish history would make it in. But at the same time, there are some dark stories and there are some stories that are a little more fun to celebrate because a lot of Judaism is also celebration. Do you think, though, that Jewish people, Jewish writers, are perhaps better equipped than most to write horror? It's quite possible. I mean, growing up, I certainly learned a lot of dark stories from the Holocaust and whatnot, slavery pogroms and stuff like that. There tends to be, I don't want to say all the time, but in Jewish humor, there's a dark edge to it. I grew up in New York State. That was definitely a lot of it. So it may be that culturally, based on the way we grew up and the stories that we do have a little bit of that in us already. What did you learn putting together the Jewish Book of Horror? Anything about your own faith that emerged in this? Well, funnily enough, yes. So I was always a cultural Jew. I'm not a super religious person or anything like that. Um, And I hadn't paid a ton of attention to Judaism over the years. I mean, I I refer to myself as a Jew. I, I read a bit about things like that. But in researching particularly Jewish demonology, I actually developed a closer relationship to Judaism, not in the sense of worshiping demons or anything like that, but the whole history of that coming from the Kabbalah. And there are a fair amount of mentions in the Bible, some are veiled, some less so. So to me, that's really opened up the whole new world of Jewish horror. And I'm currently working on a Jewish folk horror novel. Oh, goodness. You know, I grew up with the idea of the Dybbuk, which was like a dark, possessing force. I, I want to say that it entered or exited your big toe, but I can't remember if that was part of the story I grew up with. Do you know about the Dybbuk? For sure. And yeah. we do have a Dybbuk story, basically a Jewish ghost, like you say, possessing entity. And we did want to deliver some of the, what we're calling Jewish 101, things like the Dybbuk, the Golem. But we take things in directions that people might not expect. We wanted to do some unexpected things with this anthology, and we certainly did. You co-founded the Denver Horror Collective, whose slogan is Darkening Denver's Doors Since 2017. More on that in a bit. But, Lindsay, I'd love to get to your story, which you'll read for us. It's titled How to Build a Sukkah at the End of the World. And maybe you can start by explaining what a sukkah is. So a sukkah is just a hut, and it's part of the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, which commemorates the 40 years that the Jews were said to have spent wandering in the desert. So it's the idea of this like makeshift shelter and dwelling place. So what you do is this comes after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement. After that, what you're supposed to do is build this hut, this sukkah, which is a three-walled temporary structure. And you're supposed to eat and sleep in your sukkah for a week. I have always thought of Sukkot too as like a celebration of the harvest. Right. Think of almost, yeah. 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 So there's the aspect of it where it's the harvest time and you're outside and you're commuting with nature and you eat your meals in there. And I should also say 
for the record that I'm not actually Jewish. My yeah. spouse and my children are Jewish. Indeed. And I wanted to bring you on in particular because you you married into Judaism. Josh, tell me about including Lindsay's voice. Well, Lindsay is an incredible writer, so that's basically what it comes down to. But Lindsay is not the only person who is non-Jewish or doesn't identify as Jewish in the Jewish Book of Horror. Most of the authors are Jewish. And here's the truth. No matter where you're living in the States or the UK, you are influenced by the Jewish faith, by Judaism, by Abrahamic religions, by all of that stuff, whether you like it or not. So that's just a part of our, you can call it mythology, our storytelling, our ethical system, all of that stuff. So getting a perspective from somebody who isn't Jewish, but who has a connection to Judaism, be it through marriage, be it through just interest in the faith and the culture, that's what we were more interested in. And I'm glad I did that because we have some excellent stories from our goyim, so to speak. (laughs) All right. Well, this is How to Build a Sukkah at the End of the World. Maybe there's one other term we should explain, Lindsay, which is tashlich. Oh, sure. Um, So that is, I I mentioned tashlik in the story, and that's the practice on Rosh Hashanah of traditionally you throw bread into a body of water. And the idea is that you're casting away your regrets or your wrongdoings from the previous year, and you start the new year with a clean heart. A bit of getting rid of the old and making room for the new. Okay, read your story. It's positively creepy. How to build a sukkah at the end of the world. One, pick a day. You lose track of time when there's no more school to go to, no more friends to see on weekends, no more soccer games and family dinners. You were never great at keeping track of the Jewish calendar. Mom always did that. But mom never came up out of the basement, and you're on your own. You skipped the high holidays, but you fasted more days than not the last few weeks, and you've been whispering I'm sorry over and over since you fled the house and left mom behind. What you did on the bridge out of downtown could be counted as tashlich, although what you threw wasn't bread, and what carried it away didn't look much like water anymore. If you missed your chance to be inscribed in the Book of Life, so be it. Here in the diseased sprawl of what used to be your city, where fetid smog and bloated glowing clouds make it impossible to discern day from night. Intent matters more than precision anyway. The last time you remember knowing the date, it was summer break. Now your sunburn is all peeled off. The swimming hole in the woods is abandoned except for whatever lives in the stinking water. And it's so cold you couldn't even feel guilty for taking the puffy jacket off that corpse you found. It's autumn, or the closest thing to it you'll see in this life. Sukkot starts whenever you say it does. Two, collect your building materials. The ready-made sukkah your mother put together and took apart each year was stored in the basement. You'll improvise. Three walls and a roof made of branches. There are more rules than that, but these are the ones you remember. A sukkah must be beneath the open sky so you can see stars between the branches. Well, that's an old rule from when there were stars. The bed of an abandoned pickup truck should serve well enough. You prefer not to be closed in on all sides anyway, after what happened back in the basement. 
four walls means four surfaces that can erupt into ugly smelling boils with things moving inside them and too many doors to open between you and escape. Gather wood for your roof. You've got the scar on your wrist to remind you not to touch living trees, so look for branches broken off last week when stones rained from the sky. Check to make sure they're not moving or bleeding before you arrange them in crisscross patterns over the pickup truck. When a swollen shadow plunges down at you from the toxic sky, eye sockets hollow and oozing blackness, desiccated muscles creaking, strike it from the air with the heaviest branch you have. Keep striking until there's nothing left but wet feathers and a poison smell. Then cast your weapon aside. Your sukkah's roof must be made of materials that have never been used for another purpose. Besides, the branch has a taste for death now. Don't let it see where you sleep. Three, offer the fruit and say the blessing. There are growing things everywhere, though none look like fruits you can remember or name. Choose one. Examine its skin, its stem. Listen to its heartbeat. It's been breathing the same air as you. Does it bruise and split like your own flesh if you press a thumb into it? Hold it out to all six directions. North, south, east, west, up, down. You can't see the sunset and moss grows on every side of the trees and between your fingers, but it doesn't matter if you guess wrong. God is everywhere, in the gasping dirt and the blistering sky. This is a celebration of the harvest. What you are reaping has been sown for so, so many years. Four, dwell in the shelter you've built. The dead woman's coat is not enough to keep you warm, but what could keep you warm anyway on a night like this? Sukkot is a time to humble yourself before the elements. You are small and God is great. Remember your ancestors, the ones who wandered in the desert, the ones who went to investigate the noise in the basement. All of them left behind their terrible safety to step into the gnawing mouth of the unknown. All of them survived so you could be here on this day. For this, you are commanded to rejoice. Your mother began Sukkot meals with bread dipped in honey, but sweetness is a memory from another world. The fruit in your hand shines in the rancid light through the branches, glistening with the promise of some unspeakable nectar. If you've forgotten the appropriate blessing, close your eyes and say, I don't want to die. Then bite. You should eat and sleep in your sukkah for seven days, longer than you've stayed anywhere since you left your house and its snarling, sucking, ravenous basement behind. You keep running, looking for a new place to rest every night, but you know you're not getting away from anything, just finding new places to be afraid. There is nowhere the eye of God does not find you. Your fate is already sealed in the book of life, so lay your head down and watch the sky fade from the blue of a bruise to the red of an open wound. The roof above you is as impermanent as the ground below. Five, extend your hospitality. It is a mitzvah to share your Sukkot celebration and you have been alone too long. Listen for the sound of footsteps or things that used to be feet. Nothing that walks this earth is any stranger or uglier or hungrier than you. Invite them all inside. If you can't remember the right words, just scream to the moon you can no longer see. They will come to you. From the new Jewish Book of Horror by the Denver Horror Collective, that's How to Build a Sukkah 
at the end of the world by Lindsay King Miller. And what a world you've created there. I mean, virtually everything is capable of coming alive and terrifying you. Tell us about coming up with that environment. You know, I wanted to write this apocalypse that was very undefined and sort of leave it up in the air what had happened and just focus on like this specific character who is trying to navigate a world where everything is entirely unfamiliar. Boy, that sounds like life right now, Lindsay. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) Other people have talked a lot about this, but apocalyptic fiction has been really popular in the last couple of years. And I think people are channeling a lot of their real world anxieties into these extreme scenarios and just kind of the fantasy of what if things got the absolute worst that they could, what would you do? How would you cope? I'm curious, Josh, if the Jewish sense of the afterlife or of heaven and hell, and I realize as a Jew myself, I'm kind of unclear on these things. Like, how does that play into Jewish horror versus, you know, a a Christian horror? Yeah, it's a great question because most horror that we see is Christian Catholic horror. The power of Christ compels you, that kind of thing. Exorcism and nothing wrong with that, right? But, you know, bringing a little... Yahweh into the mix isn't a bad thing. I'm certainly not a Jewish scholar, so I can't speak volumes on the Jewish belief on the afterlife, but it does seem to be a little here and there. So there's the concept of Sheol, which is a kind of Jewish hell. Is that someplace we can actually go? Is it a theory? I don't know. There's Shemaim, so there is a kind of heaven, but I certainly did not get raised saying, do good deeds and you'll go to Jewish heaven. So it's really hard to say. I do think there is that strong focus on ethics while you're living, doing the right thing while you're alive, and hoping for the best. <laughs> what is it like when the Denver Horror Collective gets together? What, what do the conversations sound like? Well, unfortunately, it's been a while, so most of it has been virtual for the last oh, you know, year and a half or so. We hope to be in human contact again soon. But here's the funny thing about horror authors, and I'm sure Lindsay can attest to this. We talk dark, but we act light. So a lot of us are pretty friendly and upbeat. And I think even though we're talking about horrible things all the time, I think we get that out of our system. It's a catharsis. It's like a a bloodletting in a sense. So we look at our shadow, we're not repressing it and denying it, and that allows our other more positive aspects to come to fruition, maybe. Or maybe we're just all in denial about our own horrible truths. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think that people who write horror are a lot less creepy and weird than people. I mean, obviously, we're very creepy and weird, but, you know, we get that out of our system. (laughs) And then... We're nice and fun, I think. It's cathartic to write horror, do you think? Yeah. Does it make you, I'm curious, does it make you a better friend, wife, mom? (laughs) 
know. <laughs> I don't know. I would say that horror writers are probably bad friends and partners and parents in many of the same ways that any writer is a bad friend or partner or parent in that we're constantly like looking at our lives and going, how can I turn this into material? <laughs> um, it's just the way that we turn it into material is a little more, you know, demonic. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. I don't know if this was, I assume this was timed for Halloween. If not, happy Halloween in any case. Happy Halloween to you as well. Yes, and thank you. Josh Schlossberg co-founded the Denver Horror Collective and edited the new Jewish Book of Horror. Lindsay King-Miller of Denver is one of the featured authors. When we come back, we leave the horror stories behind in favor of an origin story, how Colorado Matters got its start 20 years ago. This is CPR News. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. Listen to your favorite hosts and reporters as you never have in Edgar Allan Poe's classic poem. That no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or Listen to Colorado Matters Thursday at 9 and again at 7. Then watch their performance at CPR.org. Quoth the raven, nevermore. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm your host, Ryan Warner. But there'd be no show to host without this man. This is Colorado Matters. That's the voice of Dan Dreher, who with a small, smart team, started Colorado Matters 20 years ago. As we celebrate two decades of this program, we wanted to hear from Dan and ask him about the thinking behind the show's creation. You know, what started the discussions was how could Colorado Public Radio have a stronger local presence? How could we explore stories that matter to Coloradans? What were the stories of importance? So those things were under consideration. And at the time, we had a very small staff. And so that also was a consideration. You guys now have such a a large uh, imprint with reporters and editors and a bureau and things like that that we didn't have. So those are the sorts of things that we had to figure out. And how did you figure them out with a small staff at the time? One decision that we made is to really go in depth. I think we thought of it as a kind of fresh air model where you could spend time with guests or a single guest and really dig in and and look at the uh, different perspectives. It was really great when we had interviews with candidates who were running for office and we had a lot of time to dig into their platforms and their policies or offer debates. So it was a good way to begin in depth. And I think it met a need at the time. What some folks may not recall is that we started on September 1st and then 9-11 happened and we quickly pivoted to certainly allow the 24-hour broadcast of NPR and the BBC and then found a way to have some uh, discussions about, well, what is the impact of 9-11 on Colorado? Do you remember the first show? Anything about the interviews? or well, We'd recorded so much ahead of time because we were banking a lot of what some what people call evergreen material. Uh, we knew that it wasn't facing a deadline since we didn't have a staff to turn something around. Uh, we talked, I believe we talked about land conservation. Uh, we had an, an interview with the uh, 
principal of a largely black elementary school in Denver who was being honored uh, for her service. So it was, I believe that's what it was, but you know, come on, Ryan, it's 20 something years ago. And yeah, hundreds and and, uh, perhaps thousands of interviews ago as well. Okay, the name Colorado Matters, it's always struck me as a little bit of a supplication, like a, like a plea. Talk to me about the name. Were there others floating around? I don't think it's a supplication. I think it was a, I think we really were thinking, well, what would matter to Coloradans? Uh, we didn't want to be too cute by half and come up with a silly name or try to mimic anything that was already available in terms of national shows. But it is hard to name a show. You don't want it to be misunderstood. You don't want people to say, well, that's kind of a really weird name. Uh, Why would they pick that? So I think it really was back to the issue of ideas and about in depth and about finding ways to give our listeners um, a deeper dive into things that, well, mattered to them or that they cared about. People ask me a lot, what, what is your favorite interview? I imagine, Dan, that you've heard that question before. And do you have an example or two? I'd love to mind the archives as we've been doing this week with something that stands out from your, your oeuvre. <laughs> well, um, you know, one thing that is always, uh, I've always remembered fondly uh, was our interview with Mark Sheldon, who had been a classical music host uh, on Colorado Public Radio. We spoke with him just days, really, before he passed away from ocular cancer. And, and, and he said, I don't want to do this interview because I don't want it to be about me, and I don't want it to be maudlin. And I said, well, then we don't want that either. We want you to be celebrated. How about we talk about music that matters to you? And so we did. And it was, it was an interview of substance and poignancy and laughter. He was a great guy, and I still remember him fondly. All right. From the archives, Dan Dreher, founding host of Colorado Matters, interviewing classical host Mark Sheldon from 2003. So there is a bit of a roller coaster uh, effect. Uh, most of the time, I'm riding high, but uh, every once in a while, it I crash. <laughs> when you're riding high, what music do you like listening to? Um, celebratory music, music that's uh, that's happy, that's joyful, that's uh, uh, that uh, keeps me thinking of uh, of the the beauty of life, and it fits what I'm trying to do right now, which is take every day as it comes and enjoy the the beauty of every single day that I have that I have given to me. What's an example of uh, one of these kinds of pieces? I would turn first as I do many times to Gerald Finzi. There's a ceremonial ode that uh, that Finzi wrote uh, in praise to the patron saint of music called uh, To Saint Cecilia and it opens with this wonderful flourish this 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 trumpet fanfare and then uh, within oh within the first 30 40 seconds or so there's this grand sweep and the chorus enters in uh, to delightful goddess uh, the patron saint of music and from then on it just goes through all of the different patron saints in English history but says of all of them of all of these saints Cecilia is the greatest because she brought music into the world so it's 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 the music fits the text the text is is quite celebratory and I, and I love the piece
Penzi was a British composer. Yeah, yeah. Earlier part of the uh, 20th century. Uh, one of the last of the, I, lack of a better term, landed gentry, didn't really have to work, um, came from a well-to-do family, and uh, so he spent his life writing music. Ironically, he died of leukemia at the age of uh, 54, I believe. And, uh, and he was one of these composers, uh, well, one of these people who knew several years in advance that this was going to be uh, how he would die. And his, uh, his later pieces reflect that. Well, thank you for sharing that. When you start a show from scratch, Dan, how long does it take for it to feel like it's a part of the community, like you're a part of the community? You'd been at CPR sometime prior, but, you know, I, I came in and I'd inherited this thing that already existed and already had roots. How long did it take for those roots to grow, do you think? It's a great question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think we started to have an impact because, you know, we'd done a lot of promotion of the show prior to it. Uh, we had engaged a lot of the community in interviews prior to it, so they were attuned to listening to it. But, you know, you have to get people who are driving in on their commute to uh, listen in and to make the transition from national programming to Colorado Public Radio programming. And actually, you want that as seamless as possible so that they don't feel like they're switching gears. And so, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have, it's a good question. I don't really have a, like, was it a month? Was it six <laughs> months? Uh, but I do think that when we started hearing more from the community of people who said, I like this, or I don't like this, or um, I think you should interview XYZ about a subject. So I think once we started to hear from people, we knew that people were tuning in. Tell me about that first theme song, Dan. dredged that one up um, <laughs> i'll say this that wasn't the world's most amazing theme song but we were we were a little bit limited we didn't hire a band let's put it that way <laughs> well i would love to know what your maybe thoughts and hopes would be for the show for the next 20 years i hope that the show will continue to uh tell listeners what they want to know and help them find out things that they never even thought that they wanted to know. Help them explore ideas. And in a time, honestly, Ryan, when the world seems to be moving away from a pluralistic society and moving away from civil discourse, and we just end up with a whole lot of discord and discourse, I hope that Colorado Matters is going to continue to do what it's done all these years, especially under your many more years of leadership, and that is to engage people in conversation of ideas, to do it respectfully, to be able to disagree, and to move forward and to build a foundation of, of true civic uh, responsibility. And I hope that I'll continue to hear recipes, hear about music, hear about things to do in the mountains, hear about, you know, all sorts of fun stuff, author interviews and stuff like that. So I hope that that's where Colorado Matters will go. Well, thanks for checking in, Dan Dreher. Um, thanks for starting Colorado Matters. I'm really grateful. Well, I'm grateful for spending some time with you, and best of luck for your next 20 years.
not easy to blend those two themes together. You heard from Dan Dreyer, co-founder of Colorado Matters with Kelly Griffin. Our show just turned 20. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.